As the children are dismissed, uh, some of you know this, but if you don't know this, our lead pastor, Craig Case, is on sabbatical this summer, and he, uh, we just saw him, a few of us, a couple, uh, about a week ago, and all I can say is he had not shaven, and he was in shorts, and he looked very relaxed. So he is returning in a few weeks, and so be assured, I think he's going to have a lot of energy and excitement. If you don't know who I am, I am Katie. Smith. I am part of Maple Grove Covenant, and I've served on the leadership team for a few years here. And it's my pleasure to be able to bring the word to you this morning. So I grew up on a lake. And when you grow up on a lake, you grow up with rules. Rules like the lake is off limits when your parents are not home. And always wear a life jacket. And when I was young, the rule was I could not go past the dock. Why? Because it was over my head past the dock. But about age 10, I decided it was time for me to be Huckleberry Finn. I decided it was time for me to go beyond the dock. And in order to do that, I needed a raft or a boat. So I didn't have a boat. But if I had a boat, I could explore the island that was past the dock. And that's where I wanted to go. So I asked for a boat once, twice, probably 10 times that summer, and I didn't get a boat. The summer ended, I went back to school, Halloween came, Christmas came, and to my surprise, by this point, I had forgotten I wanted a boat or that I needed a boat. So when I opened up a Christmas gift, and in that box, there was my very own inflatable boat. A boat that was blue and yellow, the perfect colors, complete with not one, but two paddles, also blue and yellow. The problem, in December, the lake is ice. So you'd think I couldn't use the boat, but I took the pump out and I pumped that boat up. Some of you will remember, pump, pump, pump. I inflated it to full capacity. And to my surprise, I found out that it fit perfect on my twin bed. So for my entire Christmas vacation, I slept in that boat. I ate in that boat. I read in that boat. I played in that boat and I had an adventure. It was the best gift ever. The best gift ever in our passage today, Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul talks about some gifts that God has given us, the best gifts ever. And these gifts he'll call spiritual blessings are from God and they are found in Christ. And this morning as we look at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, I'm actually going to invite you on the screen behind me will come the, the passage. I'd like us to read aloud the entire passage that we'll be looking at. So Ephesians 1, verses 3, all the way to 14. So if you'd read with me, please. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, 
he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. When you believed, I wish you could be up here listening to you recite God's word. A few words about the book of Ephesians. Uh, It is believed traditionally that the author is the Apostle Paul. The letter was written to the church in Ephesus, but it actually was a circular letter. By way of circular letter, that meant that it didn't just go to the church in Ephesus. It was delivered to all of the churches in the surrounding area. And as individuals read it, They found themselves worshiping in the church. Now, the Apostle Paul is known for something. He has very long sentences. In fact, in our English class, we would call them run-on sentences. This passage that we just read by scholars is identified as the longest sentence in the Bible. No punctuation. Did it feel kind of long? Did it feel kind of like, when am I going to get a breath? 257 words, the exact length of the Gettysburg Address. Paul also wrote this when he was in prison. So he was in prison in Rome. He was there for two years, 48 months under house arrest. And while Acts 28 tells us that Paul probably had some freedom during this imprisonment, he was still contained. He was still chained up. He was still under guard, a Roman guard 24-7. And I imagine he had a lot of time on his hands to think and reflect. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect he reflected on who God was. He reflected on who his identity was in, what his identity was. And he reflected on God's vision for the church. Because Paul was interested in God's church growing in the grace of God. And perhaps it's out of this reflection that Paul then wrote this first paragraph, this first sentence of worship in his letter. A sentence that brought praise to who God was, a sentence who brought um, worship for the spiritual blessings for the gifts. So what are these gifts that God or that Paul has talked about, what are some of the best gifts ever? Well, in this one verse, this one sentence, there are a number of gifts. I just want to point out three. Adoption, forgiveness, and inheritance. So let's look at verse four and five. You'll see it on the screen behind me. You'll see it in your sermon notes. But let's look for that first gift. For he chose us, for God chose us in Christ 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God predestined us to be adopted. That's the word I want you to circle in your sermon notes. To be adopted as his sons and daughters through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace. The first gift is the gift of adoption. God chose his people in Christ before creation to be adopted into his family. Now, the first thing we want to notice in this verse is when did this adoption happen? It was before creation. Before the foundation of the world, God had decided. This was not a last-minute decision. This was not something spur of the moment that God is like, oh, yeah, I want some more people in my family. No, it was before the foundation of the world that God had us in mind. It was before the foundation of the world that God had focused on us as the center of his love, and he had decided to adopt us in Christ Jesus. Now, adoption is a relational familial metaphor. And Paul chose this metaphor because it really described well the type of relationship that God wants to have with his people. A familial, a close, intimate relationship. So when we look at this idea of this relationship with God, what we find is adoption changes our identity. Adoption changes our identity. So once a slave now becomes a son. Once an orphan, now becomes a daughter. Once a stranger, now becomes a child. Listen to this video as this young girl gives a class report. Ephesians 1 verse 5. So he decided long ago to adopt us as his children. He did it because of what Jesus Christ has done. It pleased God to do it. 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love of the Father has given us so freely. Now we can be called children of God, and that's what we really are. John 1, verse 12. Some people accepted him. They believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. I was adopted, and it feels pretty good. We should all feel like that about being adopted into God's family. If you do not feel that way, think about these similarities. First, you are loved no matter what. Second, you'll belong to God forever, just like I will always belong to my mom. God will never kick you out of his family or send you back, and neither will my mom. Next, when you're adopted, you get a new identity. I used to have a different last name. When you admit that you're a sinner and believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, you become part of his family and get a new identity as a Christian. The best part about being adopted is that I'm a Christian now. Now, raise your hand if you've been adopted into God's family. Now raise your hand if you've been adopted into God's family. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 1. Raise your hand because God has made it possible for spiritual adoption to happen. And we get to celebrate that because our identity has changed. Paul is saying to the church, you once were slaves to sin. 
You once were strangers. You were aliens. But now you get to raise your hand because you are a child of God. And as a child of God, you get to call him Father. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is Yahweh, and he's the Almighty. But he is also our Father, and we get to call him that. That idea of calling God Father would have been downright shocking to the early church because the early church had been taught that you approach God formally. You approach God in such a way that you almost whisper his name. You never call him Father. They believed God was a distant, far-off deity to be obeyed. And their faith was more like a religion than a relationship. And Paul was saying, we have been spiritually adopted. We are God's children, and we can raise our hands because he's our Father. We're in a close personal relationship with him. Paul praised God for the gift of adoption because long before creation, long before you and I were born, God had decided to make us part of his family. The second gift that we find is found in verse 7. You'll see that on the screen behind me and on your sermon notes. In verse 7 it says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The gift of forgiveness. God's had forgiven his people in the blood of Christ. And if you circle two words in this passage, it's going to be redemption and forgiveness. You see, Paul used two different words here. Similar, because they're both legal terms, but they have a very different emphasis and focus. Forgiveness is to be pardoned. It's to be freed from some imprisonment or jail sentence. And the focus is on actually letting the person go without the penalty. It's like, don't worry, you don't have to, you robbed a bank, don't worry about it, you don't have a penalty anymore, you can go. That, that's the idea of forgiveness. Redemption, on the other hand, is focusing on the cost or the payment for that freedom. You robbed a bank, you're free, but Kevin, I want you to pay for that freedom. That's the idea of redemption. And when you look at these two words, forgiveness and redemption, they come hand in hand and they talk about God's redemptive work. You see, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, was a story about God's redemptive work. And the climax of that story, the climax of God's redemptive work was the cross. Stanley Grenz, a theologian and author, says this about the cross. The sacrifice of Christ leads to the possibility of forgiveness of sins and results in a restored relationship. Grenz is saying something so important happened on the cross that it leads to the possibility of forgiveness and it results in a restored relationship. Even Jesus talked about the cross before the cross happened. Picture this, he's at the Last Supper with the disciples. It's the eve before the you know, all this stuff happens with the cross. And Jesus takes a cup and he gives thanks and he gives it to the disciples and he says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for my, for many, their forgiveness of sins. 
what? What? The disciples were dumbfounded. This is not a cup of blood. This is a cup of grape juice, a cup of wine. What's this about blood? And what's this about blood being poured out for forgiveness? Something the disciples later came to understand was something significant happened on the cross. Through his blood that was shed, there was the possibility of forgiveness, and it resulted in a restored relationship. A few weeks ago, I was part of a group of students, part of Bethel's Youth Theology Institute, and the students planned a Friday evening worship service. As part of this worship service, they decided they wanted to have confession as part of it. So the way that they included confession was, as similar to our band, if I were to kind of reenact this scene for you, as our band would be playing, the band was playing for these students, and they were reflecting on their sins, writing them on a three-by-five card. And the students had made a cross out of wood, and invited each of these students to come up one by one and nail their sins to the cross, symbolic for Christ taking on their sins. What I was amazed with is where the students took their worship next. It wasn't just ending with confession. It was inviting the students into this deep sense of the power of God's forgiveness. As the music continued to play, the students were then asked to reflect on God's forgiveness. And when they were ready, they could come up to the cross a second time. Not with their sins this time. This time they stopped at a, piece of, at a table, picked up a small piece of paper, and it had one word written on it. F-O-R-G-I-V-E-N. Forgiven. And the students were asked to take that piece of paper, go back up to the cross where they had nailed their sins, and cover their sins with that word and truth of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul was inviting the early church not only into this sense of uh, confession, but also into the power of forgiveness that Christ has provided on the cross. God praised, Paul praised God for the gift of forgiveness because Christ had paid the ransom. He had made forgiveness a possibility, and because our sins are covered, the restored relationship is possible. What about the third gift? Let's look at verses 13 and verse 14. I'm going to start just a little bit into verse 13, and you'll see this again on the screen. And it says, When you heard the word of truth, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glorious grace. Here you might want to circle the word inheritance that comes. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the gift of inheritance. Have you heard about a TV show called Strange Inheritance? It's one of the latest in this idea of um, reality TV shows. And the storyline follows individuals who have gotten inheritances, but not your normal inheritance, like a car or a clock or, you know, a house. It's, they're looking at strange and unconventional, unique inheritances. And the show follows the family or the individual as they decide what to do with this strange, unconventional inheritance. For example, one family, 
they inherited a 900-acre bug museum. That's right, bug. Not the car Volkswagen bug, but insects, a bug museum. What would you do with that strange inheritance? Or what about the woman who inherited a hand-carved miniature circus? That sounds cool. Complete with 67,000 pieces of the circus. Tent, lion, the ringmaster. Or what about the man who inherits an underground man cave? 20 acres of rooms and gardens, get this, dug out by his uncle, who was an immigrant from Sicily in 1906. These are strange and unconventional, unique inheritances. And when we look at Ephesians, we find inheritance in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, inheritance refers exclusively to the, inherit the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Okay, an entire land of Canaan. Okay, not a bug museum, but still an unconventional inheritance. And then in the New Testament, you find inheritance referring to three things, one of three things. The first is Abraham's descendants. The second is Christ. Of course, Christ is God's son. Of course, he's God's heir. He would have an inheritance. And then the third reference, which Paul brings alive in all of his letters, is for the believer. The believer gets an inheritance. And this inheritance is eternal life. That is a strange and unconventional inheritance. It might not seem like it to us, but to the early church to hear that that was their inheritance would have made them sort of step back and go, what do I do with this? Jesus talked about this inheritance before Paul did. He, in John 6, he said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Paul goes on in 1 Peter to describe this inheritance by saying it is an inheritance that will never, never perish, spoil, or fade. Paul praised God for the gift of inheritance, for this strange and an unusual inheritance of eternal life. So here's the question I'm left with. What difference does it make that God's people are adopted, forgiven, and heirs? Because that's what those gifts mean. What difference does it make that you and I are adopted, forgiven, and God's heir? I'm going to suggest three takeaways. The first one has to do with God's identity, who God is. Because you see, if I'm adopted, that means God's my father. If I'm forgiven, that means God's my redeemer. If I get an inheritance, that means God owns it all. God is our Father, our Redeemer, and he's the one who owns it all. And Paul understood that. Remember, Paul was in prison with a lot of time on his hands to think, and he probably thought about who is God, and he thought about God being his Father and his Redeemer and owning all things and being in control of all situations. And Paul found strength and encouragement in that. I don't know where life finds you today, Maybe it finds you in a situation like Paul, a situation where you feel a little confined, situation that feels bleak, maybe uncomfortable, maybe it's a change at work, maybe it's relational conflict, health or financial difficulties. 
I think God has a word for us. Whatever our situation is today, be encouraged and find strength because God is there for you, an ever-present help in trouble. He does not change like shifting shadows. He does not leave us nor abandon us for God is your father, God is your redeemer, and God owns all things. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway relates to our identity. What is our identity? Where is our true identity found? And I think that Paul suggests our true identity is found in Christ. Paul found his true identity in Christ, but this wasn't always the case for Paul. There was a time in Paul's life where he based his identity on his status, on his education, on his relationships, on the possessions that he had. But as his faith matured, as he grew in his relationship with God, he, he took those false identities and he actually, he took them off. And he dropped them and he grabbed on to God's true identity. Which causes me to ask myself, where is my identity? Where is your identity? Is it, is it a false identity based upon something related to your work or your relationships? Is it based upon your possessions? Today, I think God invites us to the cross to take off the false identities and to grab on to the identity of being his child, the identity of being forgiven and of being an heir. Then finally, the third takeaway, I think Paul points to God's vision for the church. God's vision for the church, if you read in uh, beyond chapter 1 into the rest of Ephesians, you find is maturity and unity. God's vision for the church is maturity and unity. And what's interesting in our passage is our passage is actually a doxology. Doxology is different than a prayer. Think of a doxology as maybe liturgical worship or as corporate worship. You see, when this letter to the Ephesians was delivered to them, they would have likely read the same passage that we read out loud, incorporating it into their worship service because they found truth in who they were and what their identity was as a church. Paul began the letter with corporate worship, one scholar says, inviting the reader to understand themselves, their blessing, and their calling as members of one body, Christ's body, the church. And the doxology nurtured them and called them into remembering what their identity was and what their mission was. You see, Paul wrote in the third person plural, what does that mean? It means he didn't say I and me. The entire passage in Ephesians 1 is pronouns of we, us, are. They were in it together. And Paul understood what the early church was quick to forget. That those who proclaim Christ as their personal Lord and Savior are members of one body, Christ's body, the church. The people you are sitting next to you are part of God's body because we all are redeemed. We all are his children. We all are forgiven. We, and he owns it all. So the doxology, doxology today calls us to think about who is God, 
What is our identity and who are we as a church? And it calls us even today to be faithful to the identity God has given us so that we might stay focused on our mission, go, love, live, and that we might do this to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come this morning and we are in awe of your greatness. We are so thankful and we praise you, Lord, that you are our Father, you are our Redeemer, and you are in control and own all things. Father, we also come and we confess that at times we hold on to false identities, but we want to live and move and walk in our true identity in Christ and ask for your help to do that. And Father, we are thankful for your great vision for the church, your vision that as members of one body that we all would live in such a way that we are faithful to the identity you have given us so we might stay focused on our mission to go, love, live. And this is to the praise of his glorious grace. And everyone said, amen.